Welcome to Book Reads with Tracy, where I read books and share my thoughts with you throughout my reading. I hope you enjoy this episode. Today we are going to read the book Midnight Without a Moon by Linda Williams Jackson, Chapter Four. Chapter Four, Monday, July twenty-fifth. Here is how I figured things happened earlier that Monday morning before the sun ever rose over Stillwater, Mississippi. God called called his faithful angel Gabriel to his big shiny throne and said, "Gabe, I have a special job for you today." Gabriel honored his boss with a bow and said, "Master, whatever you wish is my command." Then God said, "Take a great big bucket and fly over the sun. Fill that bucket with as much heat as it will hold. Then go down to Stillwater, Mississippi, and pour over a girl named Rose Lee Carter, A.K.A. me. Then bake her, bake her real good until she learns not to complain so much. And I know old Gabe did what." God just ordered, because by mid morning I was so hot I could barely breathe. That sun beat down on me like I owed it money from six years back. Sweat dripped in my eyes so bad that I couldn't tell the cotton from the weeds, and I know that I was chopping down both. But even with my impending heat stroke, I felt like I had the right to complain just a little bit after what Ma Pearl did that morning. Before I could get my clothes on good, she was calling me to get to the barn to milk Ellie while Queen slept, and it didn't help one bit that the cantankerous cow Ellie, not Queen, couldn't cooperate. Milk squirted everywhere except that darn bucket. Queen claimed she'd been cramping all night and hadn't slept a wink. It's a wonder she didn't bleed to death as much as she had the cramps. Queen was two years older than me. Well, almost three. Seeing she would turn sixteen that October, and like me and Fred Lee, she lived with Ma Pearl and Papa instead of with her mama, my aunt Clara Jean, and her family. That's because Uncle Ollie, Aunt Clara's Jean's husband, wasn't Queen's daddy, like Mister Pete wasn't mine. Matter of fact, Queen didn't even know who her daddy was. Nobody did, except Aunt Clara Jean, of course. And Aunt Clara Jean never would tell a soul who Queen's daddy was. Folks said he was white, and that wasn't too hard to believe, seeing that Queen was light enough to pass for white herself if she'd wanted to, and seeing that her long hair never needed the heat of a straining comb. Plenty of folks in our family were yellow, but Queen was different. And with the way she never lifted a finger to even wash a plate, she acted like she was white too. Folks said that when Queen was born, Ma Pearl took to her like ants to a picnic. They said she snatched that newborn baby from Aunt Clara Jean's bosom and claimed her like a hard-earned prize. That's because Ma Pearl favored pretty, and to Ma Pearl, light equaled pretty, even if the person was as ugly as a moose. Folks said that when I first came out of Mama, my skin was as pink as a flower. Mama said she took one look at me and declared, "I'm gonna call you Rose, 'cause you look pretty like one." But Ma Pearl said, "Don't set your hopes high for that child, Anna May." I look at them, Anna May, not like anime, anime. Look at them ears; they as black as tar. 
This time, by the next year, that little girl gonna be blacker than midnight without a moon, just like her daddy. That's where the title comes from, Midnight Without a Moon. She's using it to describe her skin color. Of course, Malpro was right. Before my first birthday rolled around on February fourth, nineteen forty-three, I was as black as a cup of Maxwell House without a hint of milk. And according to Aunt Claire Jean, I was the ugliest little something Stillwater, Mississippi, had ever seen. Of course, my dark skin was what sentenced me to the field. Queen too light to be out there in that heat, Malpro always claimed. But like Goldilocks' claim about Baby Bear's porch, my dark complexion was just right. As I gripped the hoe between my calloused palms and stared down at what seemed like a mile-long row of cotton, I wanted to cry. Thanks to Mr. Albert and Sons, I now had to suffer at least four full days in the field instead of three. I usually didn't go to the field on Monday and Thursday mornings, the days Ma Pearl worked for Mrs. Robinson. While she kept their house, I kept ours. And Queen, even though she was almost sixteen and pretty much grown, did nothing except sit around and read magazines that Mrs. Robinson had tossed out. But I guess I should consider myself lucky. Most colored folks didn't have it nearly as good as we did, since Papa was one of the best farmers in the Delta. Mr. Robinson put him in charge of his cotton. Other colored folks who lived on the plantation had to deal with straw bosses like Ricky Turner's evil daddy, and some of them were, as Mapro put it, the most low-downed white men you'd ever see. I looked up and saw that Papa and Friendly had left me way behind. They always did. I was a slow chopper. Mapro said I had my head in the clouds daydreaming. And she was right. I was always dreaming about the day I could have, I could have a house like Mrs. Robinson's, with a maid to clean up after me, a cook to prepare all my meals, and a substitute mama to change my baby's diapers simply because I couldn't take the smell. Actually, I decided I would have a house better than Mrs. Robinson's, and it certainly wouldn't be in Mississippi. It would be in Chicago, because no matter what it took, I was going there one day, just like Mama and all the rest of them. In Chicago, I'd go to the finest school they had—a school where colored and whites went together. No white school with good stuff, and a colored school with a bunch of old stuff. And we'd all use the same bathrooms and drink from the same water fountains too. Then I'll graduate from that school and go to a fine college—a college where only the smartest people could go. I'd study to be a doctor, like my friend Hallelujah wanted to be. Then we could both be rich, like that colored doctor he told me about, who lived in Montbello. After I became doctor and made a lot of money, I'd come back down to Mississippi and buy Papa a brand new car, one better than Mr. Pete's, and I'd teach him how to drive it. Next, I'd buy him a big white house just like Mr. Robinson's, and I might let Mapro live there with him. Then again, I might not. Those were my plans: Chicago, college, and caring for my family. Daydreaming. It's how I survived that dusty cotton field. Rosa Lee, a second soprano voice called. Before I even turned, I knew I would find Hallelujah Jenkins standing at the edge of the field, waving at me. Nobody called me Rosa, but him. A pretty name for a pretty girl, he'd say. A preacher's son ought not to tell lies. I'd say back. Besides, who else would have been calling my name from the edge of a cotton field mid-morning instead of working one? I glanced up at the sky. The sun was between nine and ten o'clock. 
Every Negro I knew, other than Queen, was somewhere working, either in a white man's field or in a white woman's house. Hallelujah Jenkins was the most privileged colored boy in Lafleur County, Mississippi. Slightly chubby and not so athletic, he always wore starched shirts, creased slacks, funny-looking suspenders, and brown penny loafers. Even in hundred-degree weather, just like his daddy. Reverend Clyde B. Jenkins II, and he was constantly pushing his thick black glasses up the bridge of his pudgy nose. Hallelujah was actually Clyde B. Jenkins III, but everyone called him Hallelujah. When he was 18 months old, that was the first word out of his mouth at a funeral, no less. Hallelujah even dressed nice when he helped us out in the field on occasion. And trust me, those occasions were few and far between, as the old folks used to say. Ma Pearl said he was too delicate for farm work, but Papa said it was a sign that Hallelujah would be a man of books and not of brawn. A learned man like his daddy, Papa said. Erudit is the word my seventh grade teacher, Miss Johnson, would use to describe him. Hallelujah was a strange kind of fellow, but he was also my best friend. And I saw him that morning. I remembered it was his birthday. He was finally 14. 14, 14 going on 40, as Papa would say. But to Hallelujah, 14 seemed to be the magic age when he thought Queen, the girl he claimed he would one day marry, would finally pay attention to him. Guess he forgot that she would keep having birthdays too. Like me, Hallelujah didn't have a mama. Well, I had one, she just didn't act like one. But Hallelujah already had three mamas in his brief lifetime. Hallelujah's first mama, his real mama, died when he was four, his second mama when he was eight, and his third mama when he was 12. It's true, they all died four years apart. Folks said Reverend Jenkins killed him. They said he bored them to death when he forced them to listen to his sermons all week before he put his congregants to sleep with them on Sundays. Rumor had it he was on the lookout for wife number four. Too bad every woman in Lafleur City did her best to avoid even shaking the poor man's hand on Sunday morning, in case there was any truth about his sermon boring his deceased wives to death. Hallelujah trudged up on up the road towards me, his penny loafers collecting dust along the way. It was so hot that even he even he wore a wide-brimmed straw hat to hide his face from the sun, when a fedora usually graced his head. How come you didn't grab a hoe, I asked him. Can't you see I need some help? Hallelujah shook his head. Can't. Preacher, let me stop by for only a minute. What? Long enough to eat some of Mob Pearl's cooking? Normally, Hallelujah would have laughed, but that day he didn't. He didn't even smile. Happy birthday, I called, hoping to at least conjure a lip curl, but Hallelujah's expression remained stoic. With a wave of his hand, he gave me a dry thanks. I leaned on the heavy hoe and wiped sweat from my face with my sleeve. When Hallelujah got closer, I could see that his eyes were red, as if he'd been crying. What's wrong? I asked. Okay. I think that something happened to his dad, or it could be something about, um, like, Mr. Albert, but I'm not sure. What's wrong, I asked. Hallelujah tilted his head sideways. Didn't you hear? Hear what? About Levy. My legs went weak. 
Yes, I was correct. Levy is like, I think, Mr. Albert's son or daughter? I forgot. I knew something bad had happened. With Ma Pearl acting jittery that morning and Papa being quieter than usual, I knew something had happened that they didn't want me to know about it. Mr. Albert, Levy, and Fish had been working with us in Mr. Robinson's fields for as long as I could remember, and they had never missed a day of work. My top lip felt numb when I spoke. Something happened to Levy? Hallelujah removed his glasses and wiped them with a handkerchief from his shirt pocket. Before he put his glasses back on, anxiety shone in his eyes. Rosa Lee, he said, his voice shaking, his eyes tearing up. Levy's dead. Oh, my God. Wait, but why, though? I don't really know why, but... Black. Pulsating dots flashed around me as Hallelujah's next words floated to my ears. Pick up, pick up, shotgun, head, dead. The black dots multiplied as the earth spun beneath my feet. Nausea rose in my stomach, and every drop of biscuits and eggs I'll eaten that morning threatened to come back up. Dropping the hoe, I grabbed my stomach and bolted from the field. As I stumbled clumsily between the dusty rows of green cotton leaves, I couldn't help but resent them. Levy Jackson, a fine young man, had spent most of his life tending to that field, bringing that cotton to life every summer. Now, he no longer had his. I wanted to scream. I wanted to scream until my anguish was heard all over Stillwater, all over Mississippi, all the way to Chicago, straight to my mama's ears. I don't know why, but I hated her at that moment. I hated her more than the nameless face that had shot Levy Jackson for no good reason. But I couldn't scream. I couldn't open my mouth and take a chance on throwing up and killing any of Mr. Robinson's precious cotton. By the time I reached the edge of the field, my stomach lurched. Racing past the chickens, scratching in the yard, I dashed towards the toilet, heaving the whole time. I'm not sure why I ran to the toilet, knowing its stench would only make me gad more. When I reached out, I, I ran behind it, my body lurking forward, spoon the last of my breakfast towards the ground. Hallelujah banged on the door of the toilet. Rosalie, you okay? I'm back here, I called weakly, all my strength now a yellow puddle on the floor. Rubbing goosebumps from my arms, I came from behind the toilet and headed up the path to the backyard. Hallelujah trailed behind me. When I reached the yard, I hugged my arms around my stomach and doubled over. A sick moan followed. <sighs> Hallelujah put his arms around my sugars, shoulders and ushered me to the back porch. When my body dropped on it like a sack of overgrown potatoes, I pressed my face in my palms and screamed. I screamed until my stomach hurt. I shouted into my palms. Why, hallelujah, why? He registered to vote, hallelujah said, his voice hoarse, and they killed him. I raised my face from my palms and wiped away tears with my sleeve. Levy wasn't old enough to vote, I said angrily. Hallelujah removed his glasses and wiped tears from his own face. He turned 21 last Thursday, he said, went to the courthouse and registered the next day. Levy left the field early on Friday, I said, my voice choking, said he had something important to do. Hallelujah stood right beside me, but his words seemed distant as he detailed the little he knew of Levy's murder. 
My man, my mind was on Levy, and what a fine young man everyone said he was. So, so all I heard from Hallelujah's rant was, forced off the road and shot in the head. I could see Levy's dark brown face as if he wore he were standing right in front of me. It hadn't been a week ago that I heard him brag to his younger brother Fish that this would be his last summer trapping some white man's cotton. He was the first person in his family of eight boys to graduate from high school and attend college. After his first grade teacher declared him brilliant, his parents scratched and scrimped for nearly twelve years in order to send him. In the summer, he came home and chopped cotton to help out, with the promise that when he graduated, he would get a good job and move his parents off Mr. Robinson's place. That September would have been the beginning of his last year at the Colored College, Alcorn, and it was all for nothing. Levy was dead, gunned down like a hunted animal. Something needs to be done about folks being killed for registering to vote. I said, my teeth clenched. First, Reverend Lee and Beldoni, and only two months later, Levy. Hallelujah! Wiped his face with his handkerchief, then put his glasses back on. He laughed, but it wasn't a happy laugh. White folks won't do a thing to another white for killing a nigger, he said, pulling his, pushing his glasses up the bridge of his nose as he stared out towards the cotton field where Papa and Freddie. Were mere dots on the horizon. They won't even do anything if a negro kills a negro. A negro ain't worth a wooden nickel to them. Kill one, another one will be born the next day to take his place. He took his glasses off again and wiped his eyes. Hallelujah! Plopped down on the porch beside me. We both stared out at the chickens clucking aimlessly around the yard. Slick Charlie, our only rooster, stood guard at the door of the henhouse, as if to say, "You hens better stay out there in the yard where you belong. Stay out here till your work is done." When the screen door burst open, I jumped so hard I almost fell off the porch. Queen stormed out the door. It was well past nine o'clock, and she still wore rollers in her hair. Her pointy nose stuck up in the air as if she smelled something foul. She pinned her hazel eyes on me and Hallelujah and said, "Y'all cut out all that racket. I'm trying to sleep." A copy of Red Book magazine hung from her her hand. Hallelujah tips his hat. Morning, Queen. He said, "Didn't mean to wake you." Queen ignored Hallelujah as if he were a leaf on a tree. Instead, she glowered at me. Can you hold down the noise? Queen Levy Jackson got shot last night. I said. Queen shrugged. Niggas get shot around here a lot. Hallelujah stared at Queen. His eyes narrowed. Levy's dead, Queen. He said sternly. They say some white men in the pickup forced him off the road and shot him in the head. For a brief moment, shame crossed Queen's face. Then, as quickly as that moment came, it vanished. Queen turned up her nose and said. I knew that Abdi Nigga would get her, himself killed one day. She stormed back into the house, al- allowing the screen door to slam shut behind her. Hallelujah! And there, and I stared at the door in silence. A few seconds later, I sighed and shoved myself off the porch. <sighs> I've got to get back to the field, I said. Ma Pearl will beat the black off me this evening if she finds out I've been sitting around talking to you instead of working like I'm supposed to. Peter will be back shortly to pick me up. Hallelujah said, "I'll just head up on the road and meet him." No, I said, grabbing his arm. 
Hallelujah flinched with surprise. I quickly moved my hand and said, Don't walk down the road by yourself. Hallelujah stared at me, confused. I meet preacher along the road all the time. I told him about my encounter with Ricky Turner. He slumped back down the porch. I'll wait for preacher, he said. And that is the end of today's Book Reads with Tracy. If you enjoyed it, make sure to check out the next episode. And I also hope to see you next time. Bye!